Chris Nolan is standing by. Hey, wacky Bruce. Coming to you from an undisclosed location, this is the Bruce Exclusive. And here's your host, Bruce Nolan. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to another edition of the Bruce Exclusive Live, a Buffalo Rumblings live show. I am your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. A little bit of a pivot tonight, ladies and gentlemen, a little bit of a pivot, mostly because this was supposed to happen on Locker Room, but we kept having some technical difficulties and you all are deserved. You all deserve a live show from Bruce. You deserve the opportunity to have a chat. And so after an exciting week that included the NFL draft, I feel like it's pretty important that we have a discussion this Thursday live. It's just not the same without you guys live. Now, sometimes I prefer that. I will openly admit it. Sometimes I prefer not having people yell at me in the comment section, but you guys wouldn't do that to me. You wouldn't do it. You love me, right? So what we're going to do is we're going to take an opportunity to get caught up on some of the almighty takes that I've gotten over the last week or so on both Twitter and Instagram, in addition to the stuff that's been emailed to me, because it's a pretty significant variety of grab bag. And we're going to go ahead and do that. And we're going to look to the comments and people can chime in on these takes. We're going to get takes on takes and your best take on a listener's take. I'll throw it up on the screen. We'll chat about it. So we're going to go ahead and get started. Patch softball right off the bat says to me, his almighty take is the Bruce exclusive will be fire this summer especially the ones you pre-record so that you can get some holiday slash vacation slash staycation slash quality family time. So first off, that is part of the plan to pre-record some episodes and take a vacation. At some point, I would like to do that. That would be something I would enjoy for sure. However, I always say I'm going to do it. I haven't really taken any time off since I started doing the pod a couple of years ago. I was in the hospital one time, but aside from that, I haven't really taken significant amount of time off. So at some point I'll probably try, but to be fair, I said that last year too. Justin says, Bruce, this is not as much of a hot take, but something that made me feel better about this year's draft that you may be able to share with the mafia. So like most fans, I was really looking for players in the first three rounds that were upgrades to spots on the roster. Some players to help close the gap between Casey and the Bills. I would say I'm split 50-50 pass rush versus coverage, and I understand the importance of both. But Greg Tomsat made an interesting point that may be okay with going defensive end back-to-back. Bean is resetting the clock on the defensive end room for the Bills, similar to what teams do at quarterback. In doing this, AJ, Groot, and Boogie will make less than $6 million in both 2021 and 2022. That's almost $4 million less per year than what Hughes makes by himself. Not only is Bean betting on traits with these picks he has faith in the coaching staff to develop, if AJ, Groot, and Boogie fill out and their impact is big, 
for the next four to five years on rookie contracts, he will have hit huge. This money savings is going to help with Allen's contract and Edmonds. I think it was important to hit on the DE group this year and possibly wait until next year's draft to fill in the secondary. I'm still hopeful for free agent additions to the cornerback room, but as much as being claims it's BPA, I think they had intentions to take Mario and Hughes' replacements. Defensive end is a premium position that costs a lot in free agency, money the Bills don't have. Okay, so I do think that I don't think it's an accident. I would agree with you. I don't think it's an accident that the Bills took defensive ends back to back. I think if they didn't think that there was some sort of benefit to it, then I don't think best player available always comes into play. So everyone talks about best player available as being like this overarching theory. And it's not. If it was, if the best player is a quarterback, you're going to take the quarterback. But the Bills aren't going to do that in the first two rounds. They didn't take a quarterback until the fifth round. So we've established that they will take a quarterback if it's the BPA, but it was the fifth round with Jake Fromm last year. Now we can have an entirely separate argument over whether or not it's actually the best player available because I, I, of course, you know, am not a Jake Fromm guy. However, I think it's really important that we talk about the fact that BPA doesn't necessarily mean that unless they can have a fit for you. So the fact that they were willing to pull the trigger on the BPA for Boogie Basham in the second indicates they had a future plan for him. And it's exactly what you said, which is they're trying to get cheaper players who can be just as effective, if not more effective down the line to accommodate for the fact that Josh Allen's going to be making a lot of money. In the comments, Ethan says, hey, Bruce, Richard Rush says, good evening, y'all. Chris Jenke, always, always. Hey, what's up, Bruce? Richard says, Bruce can't show his face. That would kill the mystery. It's true. I mean, guy, guy, give me something. Kenny Riggleman on Facebook says, Bruce, with some flex emojis. And Bill's Rock 12 always a good time, says, let's do this. So we're going to move on to David's almighty take. And David's almighty take says, the only problem I have with the draft is the lack of a corner. I don't know if you agree. (laughs) Yes, no, I do agree. (laughs) I am willing to trust being that the cornerbacks they wanted didn't fall. He talks about still having time to address us. What are the odds that we can get an upgrade over Wallace through free agency or reasonable trade? Okay, so... I do think that there's a couple free agent cornerbacks who are still on the market. Now, Casey Hayward was there, but he signed. I think the one that immediately jumps out to me is Steven Nelson, formerly of the Pittsburgh Steelers. I know that a lot of people want to talk about Richard Sherman, and I do agree that Richard Sherman is an upgrade to Levi Wallace. I would agree that. My problem with Richard Sherman is he doesn't accomplish the goal as to why I wanted a more significant athlete at corner. I wanted an athlete at corner specifically because the opportunity will exist to run more varied coverages if you have someone who can turn and run with a wide receiver too. And Richard Sherman actually further crystallizes your necessity to run cover three quarters, a lot more zone because he's not a man coverage corner. So for me, Steven Nelson would be perfectly reasonable. I think it can be done. It's pretty tight on the cap but I don't think he's going to be a double digit a year corner. Also, David says, how would you feel about trading a 2021 pick for a cornerback now? Is it possible? Yes, it's possible. But if people were going to be on the trade block, they probably wanted to try to move them before the draft. Trades happening right after the draft is very, very, very uncommon. 
it's uncommon because they wanted to try and utilize those assets sooner rather than later. Patrick says, Bean's gotten a little too cocky and too clever by half. Maybe some of these dudes turn out to be steals. But our Super Bowl window is now. And it's hard to see how this draft helps us materially. 10-point word. Greg Thompson has taken a drink out there somewhere. In 2021 or even 2022. So maybe our roster is well-positioned for 2023. But isn't that exalting the means, good cap roster management, over the end winning the Super Bowl? Obviously, there are issues at the margins, and it's not a binary choice. But I'm worried we didn't strike the right balance here between building the best time to win now and the prudent long-term building. Thanks, as always, and great contact. Patrick, thank you so much for bringing this up. This is a really important thing for Bill's Mafia. And it's important because we've never really had to talk about it before. This whole Super Bowl window being now hasn't been a thing for 24 years. It hasn't been a thing that we've had to worry about for a long, long, long time. And so I'm glad you gave me the opportunity to talk about it. Here's the way I feel about it. I mentioned to you guys who listen to my podcasts, I less mis- excuse me, I mentioned to you this particular season, later in the season. Are the Bills a Super Bowl contender? And I said, okay, well, we got to define Super Bowl contender. That's necessary. And what I used to define Super Bowl contender is this. If your team wins the Super Bowl and the story that year isn't how unbelievably improbable it was and what a crazy historic run, and I can't believe they came out of nowhere to do it. If the narrative isn't that, then you're a Super Bowl contender. That's my definition of Super Bowl contender. The reason I say that is because the underdog narrative is low-hanging fruit. If the media has a chance to get that, they're going to get that. And if they don't get that, it means that they know it wouldn't be consumed properly by the populace. They know they can't get away saying things like, oh, the scrappy underdog 2007 Patriots who went undefeated in the regular season. Like, you can't say that. Because the populace won't accept it. And so if the Bills would have won the Super Bowl last year, it wouldn't have been, wow, no one thought they had a chance going into the playoffs. Everyone knew the Bills were a good team going to the playoffs and they had a shot at it. So that's my definition of Super Bowl contender. And to me, there's a lot of luck involved in this. A lot of luck involved. So if you're a Super Bowl contender... Your job, I don't think, is necessarily always to build a better Super Bowl contender. I think it's about keeping the window open as long as possible. And I think one of the things that keeps the window open as long as possible is proper cap management, proper roster management, doing the things that Brandon Bean has done thus far in his tenure as Bill's general manager. So for me, I'm not really that worried about it. Because I don't think there's a lot of moves that the Bills could have made this year. The Bills are a really good team. I find it really funny when we say things like the Bills are loaded and then also say we had to take advantage of our window now. Take advantage of our window now by doing what exactly? I mentioned that the Bills had the opportunity to draft seven or eight players and have them make the team because I think there's a lot of depth needs on this team. But how many starters do you think you reasonably could have upgraded? on this team, 
Running back, I would agree with that. Running back, for sure. Maybe a guard. One tech defensive tackle, potentially, if you found someone who's better than Starla Tulele. Cornerback, that's about it. So unless you made a concerted effort to draft players who were better than those positions, which you're not going to get in the sixth round, you're probably not going to get somebody who's going to come in and take Levi Wallace's job in the sixth round. You're probably not going to get somebody who's going to come in and take Zach Moss and Devin Singletary's job in the sixth round. You're probably not going to get somebody who's going to come in and take John Feliciano's job in the sixth round. So you have what, three picks to pull that off? So I just don't think when you have this good of a team, your goal should necessarily be slanted significantly toward take the next step. This is what we saw the Titans and John Robinson do. We saw him go, we're close, and get cute. Took Isaiah Wilson, signed Jadavian Clowney. He decided he was going to get cute. He said, we're almost there. Now, all of a sudden, the Titans are going backwards. They're going to have an uphill battle to make the playoffs this year because they got cute one offseason and they ignored some red flags. Apparently, they don't even care about red flags because look at their draft. (laughs) They drafted a bunch of people. They don't care about red flags. So they thought they were really close and they took their eye off the long-term sustainability to keep the window open. As long as you have a good quarterback and you have a reasonable ability to construct a roster around him, you're in the window. I think team Super Bowl windows are a lot longer than maybe somebody else thinks it. I think team Super Bowl windows exist as long as you have either a really elite remainder of team, which is really small window, or a really good quarterback, which could be a very long window. The Packers have been in a Super Bowl window for a decade. The Patriots were in a Super Bowl window for 20 years. You can try and maintain that if you'd like by making sure that your remainder of team is elite. But that's a lot harder to do. It's a lot easier to just make sure your quarterback's elite, pay him, and then continually draft well. And I think Bean's been a perfectly reasonable drafter so far this year. So that's my opinion on now versus later. So we're going to go to the comments real quick. Chris D says he's got to take. Bean doesn't value pass rush over coverage. Bean values pass rush without blitz more than coverage. He wanted to shore up the front four so he doesn't have to send Milano, Edmonds, or both. Okay, I think that's reasonable. He does value pass rush over coverage, and he would prefer not to blitz. I think one of the reasons you saw an uptick in Buffalo's blitz percentage this particular year is because he wasn't getting the help he needed up front, which should have predicted that he was going to go edge high because they felt the need to do that. So I think I mentioned today on my pod that dropped this morning, I did mention that I think it's pretty obvious that Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott value pass rush over coverage based on everything they've said. However, I think I think it's a good it's a good caveat to make. He doesn't value pass rush for the sake of pass rush. He values a specific type of pass rush he wants to be able to achieve with four. Moving through, Christopher says, I am willing to work through my thoughts on this year's draft, but I have to admit, I don't know enough about the players chosen to have worthwhile opinions. So instead, I'm going to focus my comments on this year's draft around roster construction. 
I would have listed our needs this year as the following tier one, CB and edge tier two, one tech interior offensive line, tight end tier three safety, big nickel wide receiver swing tackle. So taking an edge in round one seems smart. All the corners I would have really wanted at 30 were gone. And to take two edges in the draft as a whole also seems smart, but to take them one and two, I would have liked to have tacked one of the other needs before doubling up. I can see Basham being available at 61, seeming like a windfall, but Creed Humphrey was also there, as were a number of good corners, Tommy Tremble, Ali McNeil. Will we have enough work for both Rousseau and Basham? Will we need to move Mario Addison to make room? All right, let's start with that before we move on. It's pretty clear to me that not only was Boogie Basham the best player available at 61, he was the best player available by a wide margin for Brandon Bean because he had an offer to move down. And as Boogie Basham started falling, he said, hey, I'll make this trade with you. I'll pull the trigger and move back if Boogie Basham isn't there. So as he was falling towards him, he's like, yep, yep. Come on, come on, come on, come on. I don't know if you guys have ever done this in fantasy football where you're sitting there going, oh, come on, please fall, please fall, please fall, please fall, please fall. And the second it gets to you, you're like, yes, I got it. And you nail it and you hit the pick. That's a little bit what I felt when I heard Brandon Bean talk about Boogie Basham. So it seems to me that he didn't go in thinking, let's get two edge rushers. He said, it's clearly the best player available. And like I mentioned earlier, it was the best player available with a path. Because the best player available being a quarterback, he wasn't going to take him. You're only going to take the best player available if the best player available can make your team and do the things it needs to do. So that's that. Now, in regards to the other people who are available at 61, I would encourage you to listen to the Friday podcast that is Locked on Bills with Joe Marino. Not just because Joe's the GOAT. That's not the only reason. But also because I'm on it with him. So if you're listening to this live on YouTube right now, it'll drop tomorrow morning. If you're listening to this as a podcast, it's probably already out. And we specifically talk about the types of things that we would have done differently if we were Brandon Bean. So I'm not going to spoil that here. But some of the names that you have shared are people that I would have considered at 61 as well. Christopher goes on and says, then there's Spencer Brown in the third. I heard he's an athletic freak and that's great. And I have an idea for that in a minute. But we're pretty well set at offensive tackle. I would say there's only slightly more need there than there is a quarterback. Sure, a quality backup is great, but hardly the need to fill at this point in the draft, especially when we used our first two picks on a single need when there's a long gap before our next pick. And then with the next pick, we take another backup tackle. Both of them are too tall to be moved to the interior. Four picks to address two needs, one of which is barely a need at all. The rest of the draft, I don't have a strong feeling for one way or another. All four positions worth addressing, and I don't know enough about the players to know one way or another if they were the right pick. Okay, so my crazy idea for Spencer Brown, Lee Smith replacement. Instead of a tight end who's mostly a sixth lineman, and those situations have Brown as a sixth lineman who reports as eligible and can mainly block but also catch some passes. He played tight end in high school and was named first team All-State as a senior after recording 24 receptions for 388 yards and seven touchdowns. Okay, so in regards to your idea, a lot of people have already said this in the Bills content creation community, and I agree with them. I agree with you. 
I think there's a very reasonable chance we see Spencer, Spencer Brown as a tackle, tackle eligible. In regards to the needs that you mentioned in the paragraph above, quality offensive tackle depth is hard to find in this league. I'm not saying I'm all on board with being spending a third round pick on a player who's probably not going to play, but there's two things to think about here. Number one, the backup offensive tackle for this team went from being six foot eight tie and Secchi to just north the 300 pound guy in Ryan Bates, who doesn't quite have the length. If you look at what happened to Kansas City, they had a couple injuries and they got burned, really badly burned. So Brandon Bean looked at what happened to Kansas City in the Super Bowl and what looked like what happened to them in regards to what the Tampa Bay Buccaneers actually did to them and said, well, I don't want that to happen to me. I want to rush like Tampa Bay and I want to not get rushed the way Kansas City did. So I get it. I would agree it's not a significant need for sure. But I do think that there's a reasonable chance that when he was looking at that, he was feeling pretty influenced by what happened in the Super Bowl. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity, but giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. In the comments, John says that's literally not the definition of best player available. That's exactly what I'm saying, John. Best player available is a myth. It's There's always a caveat. It's best player with some caveat. Best player who's not a quarterback. Best player available who can make the team. Best player available is not a thing. There's always a caveat. If the best player available is a punter and you had a punter on a long-term contract, you're not going to take a punter. If the best player available is a punter, in the third round, you're still probably not going to take the punter because the positional value matters. So best player available in its purest form doesn't really exist. There's always a caveat there. There's always a little bit of something that's added into the formula. It can't just be who's the most talented at their position. It's just, it's more complicated than that. Andy says, I tweeted this out, but then decided it's both too good and too ridiculous to not formally submit as an almighty take. Okay, so here's what Andy did. Andy submitted his stat projections for Josh Allen for the 2021 NFL season. And he said, hey, if Josh had the same statistical increase from 2020 to 2021 as he did from 2019 to 2020, he'll finish with 6,700 yards, 68 touchdowns, and a 135.6 passer rating. So, you know, just FYI, 
just a, an easy breezy day in the park. 6,700. Yeah, that's fun. I enjoy that. It's one of the reasons why that jump should not be expected because it's insane. It's absolutely crazy. What kind of jump that Josh Allen made. So Jameis says, hi, Bruce. I'm sorry. Bean didn't listen to you regarding cornerbacks. As soon as Stokes went to Green Bay, right before Buffalo was up to pick, I thought of you. And again, when Tyson Campbell and Asante, Tyson Campbell and Asante Samuel Jr. went early in the second. Anyways, given our first two picks were pass rushers, and we didn't get the athleticism at cornerback that we desperately need, I'm wondering if you could explain your rationale for why you think coverage is more important than pass rush, and if the potential upside of Russo and Basham can make up for a glaring hole at CB2. From what I've heard, Basham is probably more ready to jump it immediately than Rousseau, so maybe it's just upside of Basham that could offset the current and pressing need at CB2 for the 2021 season. Okay, so I can't go into all of it because it's fairly complicated, but if you go back to last summer, there was a podcast that was a joint project that I did with Joe Marino of Locked On Bills, and the Thursday episode of Locked On Bills at that time was pass rush versus coverage. And he was making an argument toward pass rush. And then the Friday episode of the Bruce exclusive was me making an argument toward coverage. I will say this as quarterbacks get more and more elusive and time to throw increases and increases and increases. You are forcing your coverage to hold for longer and longer and longer. The time to sack in the NFL is always way higher than the time to throw. The time to sack every year is in the fours. So when you sack someone, the average amount of time it took to sack them was four seconds or more. The average time to throw is historically in the twos. What that means is on an average play, if you sack them, it's because they held the ball. How do you get someone to hold the ball? Better coverage. Now, obviously that's an overly simplistic way of looking at it because I can't go through the entire thing now because I don't have another 90 minutes to do it. But overall, that's a big part of why I believe coverage is more important than pass rush. And I always will. Chris says, Bruce, my almighty take is despite using coaching cliches like games are one in the trenches, Sean McDermott actually does value coverage over pass rush, but values pass rushers over defensive backs. McDermott's defensive philosophy appears to be that he wants to rush for and then use numbers advantage in the secondary to cover offensive skill players. With smart, disciplined players in the secondary, he thinks that his scheme will take care of the coverage part, but without exotic blitz packages being deployed, his line has to win with four, so that's why he needs special athletes. The Bills blitzed more last year than normal. Part of that was due to needing to find something for AJ Klein to do he wasn't terrible at, but also we didn't have a productive defensive line. Pass rush win rate was good. Pressure was okay, but sacks, hits, and deflected passes were lacking. In an ideal McDermott defense, the line would be doing the work on its own, and you certainly wouldn't have to have linebackers leading the team in sacks. And yes, I did think this up while talking myself into the Russo Basham pick, but I think I'm onto something. Thanks for the great insight, Chris. Okay, so I understand this take the idea that he values coverage over pass rush, but pass rushers over defensive backs. I do. I I understand that concept. For me, there's enough data over the course of the entirety of Sean McDermott and Brandon Bean's coaching tenures and strategies as a general manager, assistant general manager, and Brandon Bean's general manager tree 
that it really seems pretty obvious to me he values pass rush over coverage because when you have a player who comes into the system and is going to make a significant difference, that player is usually a pass rusher. That's something he believes in. Now, it's a matter of prioritization for him. It's not a matter of understanding that coverage is important and pass rush is important. It's, okay, I'm building a defense from the ground up. What am I going to do? I'm building a defense who needs to go ahead and be better. Where am I going to start? Where am I going to devote my assets to? And for him, it's pass rushers. But like you said, he values pass rushers over defensive backs. If you think that your scheme that you want to run in the back end is predicated on getting pressure with four, then by definition, you're pass rush over coverage. So what you're describing, I would argue, is pass rush over coverage. Because the entire scheme is predicated. Its foundational principle is we've got to get pressure with four. If your principles are, we have to get pressure with four, or this doesn't work, then that is the crux. That is the onus. It is the foundation upon which the entire defensive scheme is built. And I would agree with you, but what you are describing, I would say is pass rush over coverage. Going to the comments, Richard Rush says, it's the BPA of beans board. I'm not a scout, but I would have loved a better CB2. I hope this means no more soft zone with a 10 yard cushion. I'll level with you. I'm not entirely sure you're going to get a drastic change to defensive scheme this year because you didn't really get a drastic change in personnel. Dave DM three in the comments says he's got to take Bean told us the bills need to affect the quarterback. And he said, he's confident in Dane and Levi. So it's not surprising. Edge was the first two picks. Tampa set the blueprint to beat Mahomes. Dave, I don't know if you listen to my pod day or not. I literally said exactly this thing. Like 100% this thing. So clearly I'm going to agree with you. Clearly I'm going to think this is a stroke of genius from Dave in the comments. Because I said the exact same thing. So I totally agree with you. We shouldn't be surprised by what Brandon Bean did as far as taking pass rushers. We shouldn't be shocked that he spent a day three pick on a corner who might not make this team. We shouldn't be shocked at any of this. At this point, we should be shocked when he doesn't. In fact, one of the points I made on the podcast this morning was I said that if Bean were to take a corner high while Tredavious White is still playing well, when that happens, it'll be because it was overwhelmingly the best player on the, on the board. It would be a Boogie Basham scenario. If they have him rated at 33 and he's on the board at 61, yes, then they'll take the corner. Because if you remember correctly, Bean specifically said he wanted to take a swing tackle. Uh, we need a backup tackle. So he made a specific targeting decision with tackle, but he didn't make a specific targeting decision with CB2. Folks, I don't know what else to tell you. Pass rush over coverage doesn't value that overly. Look at all of Sean McDermott's CB2s from the time in Carolina to the time in Buffalo. It's always a really good corner and then a get by guy. At this point, it's a pattern. I mentioned earlier in this podcast that if you continually date redheads, you've got a type, dude. Sorry, you got a type. Brandon Bean, Sean McDermott, totally got a type. Okay, moving along. BFJ181 on Instagram told me, Bruce, I need you to convince me 
that the 2019 and 2020 drafts were not complete busts. I know it's too early to tell, but with this questionable 2021 draft also in the books, I am nervous. Okay, so before we move on to the next thing, I'll talk about that. So first off, let's just define bust, okay? I would define a bust as a draft class is you do not get two major long-term contributors. I would consider that draft class to be a bust. So given the fact that you, BFJ181 on Instagram, didn't define bust, unfortunately, I am left to, I'm left to, to my own definition of bust. So I'm going to define that as a bust. In addition, based on the players that Brandon Bean took, I think you got to give these guys three years. I really do. You know, we haven't really done a good job of giving Dawson Knox any patience. I really hope we extend a better level of patience for Gregory Rousseau. I really hope we do. Because I think I'm going to be having these same conversations in two years on Gregory Rousseau. That's a possibility. But when you take Tremaine Edmonds, Josh Allen, Ed Oliver, Gregory Rousseau, when you take these types of players, Dawson Knox, when you take these types of players that are good athletes who have traits and significant gaps between where they are in their football career and where they could be going, you got to give them some time. We just said that Boogie Basham is an experienced, older prospect. I'm not saying give Boogie Basham three years. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying Boogie Basham is not really the type of player historically that Brandon Bean takes high. So we probably should give the players he has taken high a little bit of time. No, I'm not saying that Ed Oliver hasn't been a little bit disappointing for sure, but there are reasons for the disappointment. Playing out of position is a big part of it. I'm not saying Cody Ford hasn't been disappointing. He has been disappointing. He was also playing out of position and he was hurt. These are not excuses. What they are is things that extend your timeline of what's reasonably acceptable. It's not excuses. Excuses are something that makes it go away. Because think about the word, this happens all the time. So we're going to talk about this now, okay? An excuse is something that wipes the slate clean. Because think about excuses as a verb. Does it excuse that? If, you, if you're at work and you have an excused absence, what it means it doesn't count against you because it was excused. That's what an excuse is, but that's not what I'm doing. I'm not saying excuses. What they are is their reasons. And I'm not here to pound the table and be a homer and say everything's going to be hunky-dory. You know me well enough by now to know that's probably not the case. However, when you know the types of players that Brandon Bean is taking, and you know why he's taking them, he's taking them for stealing, you have to give him a little bit of time. He continues, BFJ181 continues and says, hey, what's your take on Tremaine Edmonds, given that we just picked up his fifth-year option? He has been below average, in my opinion, and that of PFF. Of the 52 linebackers who played a minimum 50% of their snaps, Edmonds ranked 44th overall, earning a grade of 47.9. They also ranked him 36th in tackling efficiency, which is determined by a player's total tackles and dividing them by their total snaps, a fancy way of calculating the player's production. In coverage, things got worse, much worse. Edmonds did not record a single interception and only managed to break up three passes on the year, while receivers who caught a pass against him averaged nearly 13 yards per catch. 
When targeting Edmonds's area of responsibility, quarterbacks posted an eye-popping 129.9 passer rating, ranking him dead last among linebackers with at least 400 snaps in coverage. These numbers don't seem to add up given Edmonds' speed, agility, and his condor-like wingspan, yet the numbers don't lie. His presence in coverage has been more of a liability than the asset we had hoped for. 2020, he was sent on 72 blitzes, where his only responsibility was to find the football and make a play. Every linebacker's favorite call. In those 72 attempts, he only managed two tackles for loss, two sacks, and three quarterback knockdowns, giving him a meager 10% blitz production rate, meaning out of every 10 blitzes, Edmonds only altered the outcome of one play. Again, a player with Edmonds' skill set, incredible length, agility, and speed should be a recipe for havoc on a blitz. Yet 90% of the time, Edmonds is sent by Frazier where he can just go and be an athlete. He is irrelevant. Okay, a lot of stuff to digest there in regards to Tremaine Edmonds. Let's start with the blitz thing. When you blitz the way that Sean McDermott and Leslie Frazier have historically blitzed, it's not necessarily to get a free rusher with the linebacker. This is really, really important, folks. The purpose of blitzing is not necessarily to get the blitzer unblocked. It is more often than not to eliminate the possibility of double teams because offensive linemen and the protection has to account for more numbers, which means you get more one-on-ones to win. Especially if you're a double A-gap mugger, which is one of the things Sean McDermott and Leslie Frazier do. They'll bring Milano and Edmonds up into the A-gaps, and then they'll blitz one of them. You're probably not going to get a free linebacker edge rusher. That's probably not going to happen. In fact, it's not designed to happen. It's designed so that the guard and the center can no longer dual block the player that they want to because now the guard or the center has to handle one of the blitzing linebackers up the middle. You now can no longer slide protection and double specific rushers. In fact, very, very rarely does an A-gap single mug blitzer come free because offensive lines are programmed and protections are programmed to protect the middle first. And if you have to have a free rusher, have them on the edge. But that wasn't something you saw from Tremaine Edmonds a lot in 2020. So that's the blitzing part. It's a big part of this and something we probably needed to talk about earlier, but I'm glad you gave me the opportunity. Where the blitz comes from will tell you what the intent of the blitz was. And it's not always to get the blitzer free. Sometimes it's to get somebody else free. And when you're not able to get pressure with four, one of the reasons you bring an extra blitzer is so that your your defensive linemen who are not winning against double teams can get better one-on-ones. Now, in regards to the other stuff, I do think that linebackers getting up on Edmonds was a problem because Edmonds was better at the end of 2019 than he was in 2020. So when you contribute to the fact that the Bills did not get reasonable one-tech play and Edmonds was playing hurt, I think a lot of this stuff starts to make sense. Edmonds did not have a good year last year, and I'm not trying to tell you that he did. I'm telling you again, there's reasons for it. Now, if the Bills get decent one-tech play this year and he's healthy and he's not good, we have isolated the variable at that point. But I think with all of the other things we're talking about, it's a pretty reasonable thing to assume that if you're playing with a 
pretty fairly significant shoulder injury and you're trying to power through and you're constantly getting offensive linemen up in your grill because Quentin Jefferson and Oliver are not one text and they're not designed for that, that you're going to have some issues. In addition, I have no real significant issue with PFF grades. We've talked about this before. I don't think they're useless at all. I think they're a measure of production and nobody would say that Tremaine Edmonds production in 2020 was good. They're not a measure of talent or skill level. And that's important. Willing 39 has an almighty take and says, Hey Bruce, huge listener to the pod. Always have you playing while walking the dog. I appreciate that. Willing first almighty take and it's long because I have to explain my crazy take, but here we go. Actually, it's really not that long. You should hear some of the other guys, <laughs> the bills, not spending big at a defensive end will cost them the ability to make the AFC championship game. The inability to sack the quarterback in 2020 is going to carry over to 2021. I say this because I think our D-line stinks. Every playable is blockable one-on-one. I hate that some of the Bills' defensive linemen have high pass rush win rates and high QB pressures because it clouds out the thought process and criticality. I think those are prehistoric stats. Win rate and QB pressures were valuable when the NFL standard for QBs were pocket passers, and once they were off their spot, they regressed. However, in today's NFL, players like Mahomes, Allen, Rodgers, Wilson, Jackson, Mayfield all thrive when a play breaks down. The only stat that matters for D linemen is sacks, and the Bills need more. Okay, so let's start with this. Every quarterback in the league is worse when pressured. Every quarterback is worse than when pressured. It is almost impossible to find any sample size of a quarterback who over a significantly significant sample size, I can talk today, statistically significant sample size, is better when pressured. Even the players who can do well off script, even Mahomes, even Allen, look at the stats when pressured versus without pressure. It's always worse. So pressures do matter. They they absolutely matter. And saying the only stat that matters for defensive linemen is sacks, I think might be the opposite of what you're talking about. You say that win rate and quarterback pressures are prehistoric. I say sacks are prehistoric. They're still good, but they're a results-based metric. I pounded the table for this when Jordan Phillips was collecting 10 and a half snaps. 10 and a half sacks. I said, Jordan Phillips is going to regress based on the sack per pressure, based on the fact that they're clean up sacks, based on the time to sack. All this stuff helps tell you the context of the sacks. In addition to just, you know, watching the film. And so for me, I value sacks. And that one of the reasons why you get a player like Gregory Rousseau is because he's a finisher. He's incredibly radial. He has long arms. He can take defensive and defensive plays and really make them significant because you can get a pressure from Jerry Hughes and Gregory Rousseau can take that defensive play and turn it into a sack because he's long and he's strong and he's bound to get the friction on. So I think it's really important that we understand that the investment was made in the draft and it might have had something to do with the fact that the pass rush win rate was good and the sacks weren't there. Gregory Rousseau's a finisher. He's a guy who gets those sacks. Quarterback thinks he gets away. Gregory Rousseau does a really good job of diving at ankles and using those gigantic Groot-like arms to take down a quarterback in the pocket. We've seen that happen 
on multiple occasions. Andrew Solomon in the comments gets my reference for Sir Mix-a-Lot. I appreciate that, Andrew. It's nice to know you guys are always paying attention. We're going to go to the comments. Bills Rock 12 says, question, which late rounder in this class has the potential, potential to be the Teller or Milano type of guy? Teller or Milano. Okay, if by that you mean a really good player, like a like a really good player you're going to resign, I'm going to say Marquez Stevenson. Because I do like Hamlin, but I don't think he's going to get an opportunity to show that because two good players in front of him. However, with Stevenson, you've had that elite, you have that elite speed. And anytime you have a player with that type of trait, that gives you pretty significant of a ceiling. Speed will always give you ceiling. Always. Because it's simply something that other people can't do. You can't teach running faster. You can't do it. Devin Singletary has been working out this offseason to try and get faster and more explosive, and we might see a little bit of improvement, but he's not going to become a 4-4 guy, ladies and gentlemen. That's not going to happen. I'm not going to become a lot taller. That's not going to happen either. I can wear the right shoes, and I can do a lot of stretches to make sure my posture is good, but I'm not going to get a lot taller. It's probably just not going to happen. So for me, I'm going to say Marcus Stevenson, even though I think Hamlin has a chance to contribute. But if you said, okay, one of these guys is going to be like a really good player. I would go with the person who has the thing you can't teach, which is the speed. So for me, that's what I'm going with. Ladies and gentlemen, we did it. We did it. 46 minutes. I know it was kind of weird because I really wasn't expecting to do this. So we actually had a really good turnout for somebody who wasn't scheduled to be on the calendar on YouTube tonight. So thank you for being here. Ladies and gentlemen, the comments, I appreciate everything you contributed to this particular episode of the Bruce Exclusive. Before you go, make sure you like this video. Make sure you subscribe to the Buffalo Rumbling YouTube channel. I will be doing more of these things. And if locker room doesn't work, I might be doing it again. You never know. But you always got to make sure you keep an eye because Bruce could pop up anywhere. You never know. I'm like a groundhog. I pop up, you smack me in the head, I go away, you whack a mole again. And that's the way the cookie crumbles. I'm Bruce Nolan, Buffalo Rumblings. <laughs>